The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 15, Texas, Part 3. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Welcome back. Season 2 continues to roll. My summer of traveling all over the United States has ended. Um, I visited Utah, Arizona, California, Georgia, and Alabama. It's certainly been fun, but all good things must come to an end. As you know, my last trip was to California. I was lucky enough to spend some time in the Bay Area with my old friend Joe, whom I've known for well over 30 years. Also got to see some of the sights as well as present a paper to the Pacific Coast branch of the American History Association. So it's been a busy time, but now it's back to the routine. So let's give some shout outs to some of our reviewers. The first one is to Nuclear Kitty. I hope you aren't glowing in the dark. Thank you for the five star review, and I hope you're still enjoying the show. Anulian, thank you very much for the kind words and the five star review. Shanks a lot, thank you for the good review. I'm glad that you're finding uh, the way I present the material uh, to be good and uh, you like the fact that I don't use condescension or sentimentality. I'm not too sentimental, certainly not when it comes to history. Um, Broseph Joseph, thank you for the five-star reviews and I hope you're also still out there listening. Just have to pause for a moment because some of these names just make me laugh. Broseph Joseph and Nuclear Kitty amongst the, the funnier ones. Um, anyway, we next have uh, Carmen Rivera gave us five stars and enjoys the fact that we are trying to give you history in a digestible way. Last but not least is C. Wylili. Um, she particularly said she enjoyed the bonus episode on secession, and I hope she's still out there enjoying the show as well. All right, so there will be some more shout-outs next time, even if you don't give us a positive review, but hopefully um, you will, and you'll go over to iTunes and give us a five-star review and some kind words. As for the show itself, uh, hoping to get back on track to one episode every two weeks, sometime in the next month or so. I also have plans to release a five-episode miniseries in January on the California Gold Rush. Now, gold was first discovered in California in January of 1848, and 1849, of course, was famous for the rush of immigrants to California um, trying to seek their fortune. So to celebrate the 170th anniversary of the Gold Rush, I thought it'd be cool to release a miniseries over a series of five days in January, Um, so stay tuned for that. All right, so on with the show. Now that we've covered some of the more abstract issues, like the mindset or the creed of the settlers who are moving into the state, um, it's kind of time to get down to some of the actual people and events that are um, part of the Texas move for independence. But before that, um, I want to cover a bit about the geography and climate of Texas. Now, I've kind of assumed that you knew Texas. I know this is something that I've taken for granted, and it's partially because I live here and I've grown up here. Of course, that's silly, and so now I would like to go over some of that stuff um, because obviously many of you who are listening to this are not from Texas and probably have never been to Texas. So the first thing you probably know about the state is that it's huge. 
Um, the state covers an area of 268,000 square miles and is 10% larger than France. As it is constituted today, three of the state's borders are created by rivers, the Rio Grande, the Red River, and then also the Sabine. Now the Rio Grande forms the border between Texas and Mexico, while the Red River forms the border um, with Arkansas and Oklahoma, both of which are to the north of the state. Finally, the Sabine River forms the boundary between Texas and Louisiana on the eastern side. So to give you just an idea of just how large the state is, um, Interstate Highway 10 traverses the state from west to east. El Paso is at the far western end. And when you're coming into Texas along this highway at the far eastern side of the state, just outside of Houston, there's a sign which notes that El Paso is 801 miles away. So yes, it is a very large state. Now as for the climate regions, there are 10 different climate regions with the major ones being the continental mountain and then the third being the modified marine. Now the latter, the modified marine, is also subtropical and that's the one that dominates the state. The eastern portion of the state receives a significant amount of rain, averaging something like 61 inches of rain um, per year. Now that's quite a bit of rain, especially when you compare it to El Paso, um, which on the far western edge receives about 10 inches of rain per year on average. So yeah, there's a huge difference. Now again, the majority of the state is warm, humid, and subtropical. The mountain ranges are confined to the western portion of the state, known as the Trans-Pecos region. This is also the driest portion of the state, as well as the highest point in the state. At least um, it is found here at Guadalupe Peak, which is over 8,700 feet above sea level. All right, so that kind of gives you a little bit of the geography and the climate. I've put some pictures and uh, I'm going to put some maps as well on the website for this episode, the page for this episode, so you can go and check that out and hopefully that'll kind of situate people and give you an idea of what we're talking about. All right, now the Spanish um, realized that they had a problem and they realized the problem was, again, that few colonists had settled into the northern uh, provinces of New Mexico and Texas. And so the Spanish decided the best way to handle this um, was to finally allow Anglo-American settlers the chance to move in and settle the territory. Now, we've mentioned this, episode, this policy in an earlier episode, but I wanted to come back to it and give a bit of the history behind it. Spain did have some experience with Anglo-American settlers. When they received the Louisiana Territory from France in 1762, there were already Frenchmen as well as Anglo-Americans living there. Now, before um, I get some emails letting me know that in 1762 there were no Americans, I'm aware of that. But for lack of a better term, I'm going to use Anglo-Americans, and I think you'll understand what I'm referring to or what I'm getting at. Anyway, these Anglo-Americans were allowed to remain, and starting in 1788, the Spanish had a bold plan. They would open Louisiana up to foreign immigrants as long as said immigrants promised to become Catholic and vassals of the king. Now, within a few years, Spanish authorities grew disenchanted with this plan as they believed the Norte Americanos, as they called them, were unassimilable and represented a potentially subversive element. So I just wanted to bring up a quick side note. I think this is kind of ironic if you consider the current events uh, going on here in the United States. Now, just as Mexico was on the doorstep of achieving independence and only after the United States finally abandoned all of their claims to Texas when it signed the Adams-Onis Treaty of 1819, 
Then the Spanish changed their mind with regard to immigration from the United States. Now, in January of 1821, Moses Austin, a former subject of the Spanish crown in Louisiana, received permission to bring 300 families to settle in Texas. The idea was that they had to be Catholic families, and they had to become loyal citizens. Now, within six months of Austin receiving his permit to settle in Texas, a bill was approved allowing foreigners to settle in lands along the northern frontier from Texas to California. The law also noted that special vigilance should be maintained when it came to Anglo-Americans, a fact that shows the authorities were um, worried about the effects this immigration was going to have, and I think history proves they had every right to be worried. Now, as Mexico won its independence, a commission was created to discover a solution to the problems faced along the northern frontier. Essentially, they endorsed the plan proposed by the Spanish, recommending the government should encourage uh, the colonization of northern provinces, such as Coahuila, uh, Nuevo Santander, and Baja California, as well as Alta California, New Mexico, and Texas. Further, the commission noted that Texas was the area that was most vulnerable and the main reason for encouraging colonization as a defense against not only Indians, but foreign powers. Indeed, in October of 1821, a group of filibusters from the United States, led by a man named James Long, had seized Goliad before they were captured by Mexican forces. So in a way, you could say this represented kind of a warning shot, a shot across the bow, so to speak. Now, part of the problem was there was no official border between Texas and the land-hungry Mex uh, Americans at this point, as Mexico and the United States had not ratified the line that was established by the United States and Spain in the Treaty of 1819. The solution, in the eyes of Mexican officials, was to encourage the rapid population of Texas and hope this would be a solution. The problem was the United States was growing rapidly, as was its appetite for land. The commission even predicted that one day the fertile province of Texas would be descended upon by hordes of Norte Americanos. Of course, this prediction proved to be correct. Now, the Mexican government eventually passed a colonization law in 1824, one which guaranteed land security and exemption from taxes for four years for all foreign settlers in the frontier region. Now, interestingly, the law did not require foreigners to convert to Catholicism or become citizens. A subsequent law passed in 1828 would make citizenship a requirement for anyone who lived in Mexico for two straight years, and it did make it more difficult to obtain land, perhaps a sign that already Mexican authorities recognized the danger they were in. You are probably shocked, or at least wondering, why would Mexican officials put themselves in this situation? Now, remember, though, they were worried about the Americans. But at the same time, what choice did they have? Their only choice seemed to be to take a chance that they could control the situation and that as long as the foreign colonists were happy with their situation, they wouldn't cause any problems. And as historian David J. Weber notes in his excellent book, The Mexican Frontier, 1821 through 1846, The American Southwest Under Mexico, there were already large numbers of Anglo-Americans living in Texas in 1823 perhaps as many as 3,000. At the same time, Mexican troops in Texas only numbered about 200 and could not possibly be expected to patrol the immense province of Texas, much less expel these foreigners. Furthermore, Mexican officials hoped that immigration from the interior of Mexico, along with Europeans, would offset the American influence and keep the province from becoming Americanized, hopes of which, of course, proved unfounded. Now, the thing about 
these federal laws is that they only provided generalized guidelines. And the details of regulating foreign colonists and the process of colonization was left up to the actual states. Now, the first states to take action were, of course, those in the north, and included Coahuila y Texas. Some officials here had opposed allowing Anglo-Americans to legally settle in Texas, realizing that doing so was an invitation to danger. Over the objections of the state legislature, um, the federal government passed the Colonization Law of March 24, 1825, which permitted Americans to settle in the province, but gave preference to Mexicans. Now, furthermore, the law allowed the head of a family to obtain what was called a sitio of land, which was the equivalent of about 4,400 acres of grazing land or a labor of farming land equal to 177 acres. Now, the prices for um, this land, either which one of these pieces of land, were pretty modest, and they, it was guaranteed to attract settlers, especially since you could pay the fees off in installments over a six-year period with no money due until the fourth year. So to encourage assimilation, the law also allowed those who married Mexican women to obtain even more land. Now, while the state laws did not specify that a settler needed to use an immigration agent, the reality was that due to language barriers and ignorance of Mexican laws, most did rely on an agent if they did not simply ignore the laws and just settle in Texas illegally. Many of the immigrants who did come to Texas and settle on their own did so in East Texas in communities such as Sabine, and many people as late as 1836 still lacked title to their land. There were also many colonists who simply ignored or were just ignorant of Mexican uh, laws which stated they could not settle within 20 leagues of the border with the United States or within 10 leagues of the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, while some of these did substantially improve their land, they lived there as squatters and thus in uncertainty about what the future might hold for them. Now, those who were able to obtain title to their land were often uh, those people who came to Texas having used a land agent known as an empresario and came as part of a colony. Moses Austin and later his son, Stephen F. Austin, were empresarios. Between 1825 and 1832, approximately 24 empresario contracts were signed, calling for a settlement of as many as 8,000 families. 17 out of those 24 contracts went to foreign empresarios and the rest to Mexicans who were business partners with foreigners. Now, the most famous of the land agents was Stephen F. Austin. At the age of 27, he was well-educated. Um, he had several years of experience in the territorial legislature of Missouri. And um, taking up his father's commission, he spent a year in Mexico City. And that certainly had an effect on the eventual decision to pass the law allowing colonization along the northern frontier. Now, within two years of obtaining permission from the Mexican government, Austin had fulfilled his contract. He would go on to obtain three contracts from the state government, each of which called for the settling of 300 families in Texas, and all of which Austin met. Austin had his major settlement 60 miles west of present-day Houston at a settlement called San Felipe de Austin. This land grant was immense, bordered by the San Antonio Road to the north, and the Gulf of Mexico to the south. Now, because his grant existed prior to the 1824 law, which prohibited Anglo settlement within 20 leagues of the border or 10 uh, leagues of the Gulf, he was exempted from that prohibition. Now, in the 1820s, either with or without the aid of land grants, Anglo-Americans flooded into Texas, drawn by cheap and abundant land. 
As Weber notes, there is no way to determine the precise number of Americans who immigrated to Texas. But by 1830, the Anglo population was most likely more than 7,000, while the Mexican population grew more slowly and perhaps numbered around 3,000. And the problem here is that not only did Anglos outnumber Mexicans, but Anglo-Americans, as had been seen earlier in the Louisiana Territory under Spain, assimilated poorly. Weber puts it best when he notes that, quote, the Mexican and American frontiers had become, had come together in Texas, but they failed to merge, end quote. Don't think this danger went unnoticed. As early as 1825, the Mexican ambassador in Washington issued a warning to his government, noting that journalists in the United States openly wrote that Americans settling in Texas would not assimilate and would retain their ties to the United States. In 1826, the government in Mexico City issued orders to reduce the flow of Americans into Texas, but those orders were ignored. So just how worried were Mexican authorities in Mexico City? In 1828, they created a commission to assess the situation and appointed General Manuel uh, Iteran as its leader. Well-educated and impeccably dressed, General Teran was the right choice for the job. At 38, he was young enough to handle the rigors of the task ahead of him, as well as uh, well, so well thought of that he would be listened to. Ultimately, the responsibility for assessing lands or dividing the lands in Texas between Indians, Anglo settlers, and Tejanos would fall on his shoulders, and it was a responsibility he took seriously. When he met the Indians, the general was more impressed with them than he expected to be. In his opinion, the Indians were civilized or almost civilized. Having met members of the Cherokee, Shawnee, and Delaware who were living near Nacogdoches, he felt the Indians could be helpful in bringing stability and peace to the province. The problems, or the problem as he saw it, was that the Indians just mentioned were simply factions of much larger groups, many of whom, if not all, lived either in the so-called Indian Territory north of Texas or across the border in the eastern United States. What was happening is that as the United States pushed Indians out of its territory in places such as Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi, those people had to go somewhere. And that somewhere was, for some of them, Texas. That then put pressure on other groups living in Texas. General Teran hoped the Indians could act as a counterbalance to the growing Anglo-American presence in Texas. Now, speaking of the Anglo-Americans, this is the group that worried him the most, um, and with good reason. They often took land, which, uh, without notifying the local authorities, and paid no attention to Mexican laws of colonization. Again, to refer back to what I just said a few moments ago, these people were bringing with them um, their culture, which is different from the culture in Mexico, especially the political culture. Um, remember back to the episode in season one where we discussed the southern colonies and I briefly discussed cavalier culture. What is important here is that these people came with ideas of self-government and, most importantly, they were all about minimal government. They also believed they were endowed by their creator with una unalienable rights. This was different than the Mexican tradition. And Teran recognized the danger. How much danger these people presented to Mexico and its prospects for keeping the northern border areas, um, Texas, is what we're going to deal with in the next episode. This seems like it's a good place to stop, a little bit of a cliffhanger. So next time, we will get into the Texas movement for independence, finally. I know you're probably thinking that. Um, remember, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter, at AmericanHisCast. Um, so thank you very much.
And until next time, good day.